Promise No Promises Feminisms in the Caribbean Episode 4 Holding on to Writing The podcast Promise No Promises opens a new chapter called Feminisms in the Caribbean. This series of four new episodes arises from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and art practitioners from the Caribbean region. The collaboration is part of the public program of the past exhibition one month after being known in that island at the Kulturstiftung Basel-H.Geiger with the Caribbean Art Initiative, curated by Gina Jiménez-Suriel and Pablo Guardiola. The changeful history of the colonization of the Caribbean has left deep scars that are still present today. This is best known by artists and cultural practitioners who work in their own way on an identity of its own for the Antilles. The term Caribbean here is used primarily in a geographical sense to help overcoming local antagonisms between different political systems, languages and cultures, while allowing artists of all origins to exchange ideas and thus work together on a Caribbean identity. This series of podcasts aims to engage with the plurality of voices from different backgrounds to think with them on the diversity implicit in the notion of identity. Holding on to writing is the fourth episode of Feminisms in the Caribbean, which emerges from a conversation with writer Ketley Mars. Poet and novelist in 1999, she published Un Parfum dans Sens, her major collection of poetry and short stories. A few years later, she published her first novel, Casale, which delves into rural life in Haiti. Among the various novels she wrote since then are L'Heure du Brite, Aux Frontières de la Soive, Savage Seasons, and Je suis vivant. As Catley herself will say in an interview with Janine Herman, the English translator of her novel Savage Seasons, Haiti is at the heart of her creation, being a pretext for her relationship with words, her fondness for storytelling and the exploration of the human soul. In the same interview, Ketley Mars tells Janine Herman that she likes to write short chapters in her books. The kind of writer she is, is more like a sprinter than a marathoner. During our conversation, Ketley will also comment how difficult it is to write in simple terms, to say in a simple way what is already complicated. During her process, words often come before ideas. The writer's body becomes a medium for the words, broadening a visceral relationship with language. One of the extraordinary qualities of words is that they cannot always explain themselves. They are content, but they are also form. They are result, but also process. Writing becomes something that happens and not just something writers do. It is a social, intimate and responsive encounter with language that allows realities to appear within other realities. Writing can be an ethical tool and a compass in moments of disorientation. Moreover, holding on to writing, an expression of Ketley Marsh during our conversation, can make it a way of life. To start our conversation, I propose to Ketley to trace together a sort of beginning for her writing. She will go back to times in her childhood and adolescence, narrating how her writing is intimately linked to many readings of those years. Not only do all things begin amid many others, but some passions materialize in others. For our conversation, Catley shared with me some of her stories translated from French into English and even into Spanish. The rhythm of her short sentences provokes in the reader a constant curiosity to know what comes next. They are stories that open with very direct sentences that are a prelude to situations to come. 
they could be a story in themselves for all the images they create in the reader. I am thinking, for example, of the sentence that begins her story, Anna and the Sea. She is going to kill him. When asked about the biography of her words, Ketley Mars will use a very brief phrase that contains the past as well as the future and the present of ideas. One writes as one thinks. It was not until her 30s that Ketley Mars was able to devote herself fully to writing. Her previous work in administration brought her into contact with another kind of language very different from that of literature, the language of bureaucracy, which is also the language of institutional power. However, she was not so much influenced by this kind of language as by the people she met at the time and the life experiences she had working in the administration, a period in which any free time was filled with writing, no matter how short it was. This context appears, for example, in one of Catley's short stories, The Anteroom of Paradise, where paradise is a promise that is not the same for all of those who visit the consular office. Regarding her characters, Catley will say that she is fond of all of them, however different they may be. While it is easier to create characters who are good, who are easy for readers to like, the challenge is much greater when creating characters with much more problematic ethics. A very difficult thing, as she will say with her welcoming sense of humor, is to kill off a character, even when the story calls for it. This conversation with Ketley Mars took place in November of 2022. It was the morning in Florida, her new place of residence and writing for the last year or so. It was late afternoon in Berlin, where I found some of Ketley's novels translated into German without being able to read them. Her book, Sauvage Seasons, would reach me after our meeting, giving me the possibility to keep hearing Ketley's voice in her writing. The script I sent her for our conversation had many questions that we didn't go through. From the beginning, we both knew that spontaneity and detours would be companions in our encounter. Some questions also emerged from others, thanks to Catley's ability to write with her voice, even in a language that is not native to both of us, such as English. Catley Mars, who has written extensively in French, also writes in Creole. While the two languages are part of her identity, her emotional relationship is not the same with each of them. This relationship also includes the socio-political context of Haiti over the years, during and after the Duvalier dictatorship. Different from history books, which are a collection of historical facts, names and events, novels and fiction add new meanings, add multiple senses and add everyday lives to official history. The way in which fiction helps to understand, even feel, realities that we have not lived is something that emerged during our meeting. As did poetry, significant anecdotes and personal situations, authors who are fundamental and dear to Catley Mars, or the expectations and demands of others about what one should write and tell, depending on where one is from.
I had a passion for writing ever at a very early age. As far as I can remember, I uh, was reading and this love for reading came from my mom because she was a great reader herself and she liked romance and novels that talked about love. She loved the Spanish songs because they always talked about love. I remember uh, she went downtown in the open market to buy books, secondhand books, because she didn't have enough money to buy, you know, brand new book. She would read them. And when I was not, did not read well enough, she read passages for me and explained for me. And when I started going up, she, she gave them to me to read without censorship or nothing. So I started reading adults book at a very early age. But when I was little, I remember I had my cousin Annie who was the only daughter of her parents. Whereas in my family, we were like five kids. Annie was spoiled by her dad and she had everything I wanted to have and mostly books. So I loved to go spend the weekend over to her place just to stay in a corner and read and read and read. I was a little bit envious of her for having everything I wish I could have. But still, I was happy to have the opportunity to read all those image books that Annie had and that I could not afford. Reading was with me. And when I started primary school and secondary school, I guess my strong point was writing, was composing. Dissertation, as they call them in French. And the French and literary teachers pet because I was a good student, you know, and they used to read my compositions in class, although I did not like that too much, but still, all that is looking back. When I look back and I say, these are the things that could tell me that I have a propension, you know, to writing. I also remember being fascinated by the writers themselves because I was wondering, but how can someone write 100, 200, 300 pages and go on and find things to say? What's in their head? What's in their hearts? What's in their lives? How, how can they do something like that? To me, the, the greatest realization in my life would be one day to have my name written on the first page of a book. That would be the craziest and most beautiful thing to me. But, well, at this time I was a teenager and little did I know that it would take like 20 years for this to start to happen. So it was just wishful thinking at the time. But I was, you know, fascinated by writers, authors, whether they were poetry or plays or novels, mostly novels. So my story with uh, writing began at an early age, but it's only a little later that uh, I really made the leap of faith and decided, well, I'm starting and I'm never going to stop. It took time to begin because as everything else in life, I'm a late bloomer. I'm a late bloomer in everything that I do, becoming a full-blown person, becoming an adult, becoming a woman, becoming a uh, a public person, it took time, but once it's there, it's there forever. So I don't mind waiting. I'm very patient in life. Of course, there are books that, that stay with you. And when I am writing, that's the idea that's in my mind. It's not about having a prize or making lots of money, although I would like a little more money to live. But what I look 
to is to stay with that person who will read me and never forget that book, that story that I wrote that can touch you so deep that it stays with you. Like certain books stayed with me. As I was telling you, my mom, she let me read lots of books. And one of them that stayed with me was Lady Chatterley's no Lover, a book that I read probably uh, in my 13, 14 years old. And of course, I did not understand all the content, the environment, etc. But I was really impressed by this uh, love affair between a working class man and an upper class woman. It's only after that I learned that this book was scandalous at the time and that D.H. Lawrence, they sued him for obscenity and stuff like that. But while I was reading it, I was emerging in it and I love that book so much. And of course, the, the sexual scene aroused me as a kid and I enjoyed it. But I enjoyed it, you know, without hiding myself from it. It was natural. Well, I did not feel I was doing something bad. Another book also could be um, Madame Bovary by Flaubert. It's about at the same age that I discovered that story. A very sad story, but so true, so well written. I learned afterward that this book also was banned for obscenity and stuff like that, as if I have <laughs> those books came my way at a very early age. So maybe they have an influence of how I would be writing later because there are pillars in my imaginary. From the Haitian side, the first book that I read that really made an impact on me was Gouverneur de la Rosée, Master of the Do. That's how they translated in English by Jacques Roumain. This book changed the way I look at Haitians, my perception of myself as a Haitian and what we called the paysan, the, the lower class citizen, how we perceived them when I was much younger. I'm from the capital, Port-au-Prince. In our little middle-class society, we were kind of snob. We, know, we snob people coming from the, the countryside, people from the province. We thought that we were better citizens or more, more smarter. Or I don't know where these ideas come from, but we just received them and proceeded with them. So when I read Jacques Roumain's Master of the Do, it's an eye-opener because... It's what they call the Roman Paysan. It's uh, a story happening in the countryside, that guy coming back from Cuba, and who is going to change the life of his little village with his ideas and his love for that woman that he meets. I could see that those people, well, they, they had a soul. They were so profound. They were suffering. They had joy. And uh, they, they even felt feelings much more, how would I say, of better quality than I, my poor self, in my little uh, suburban outfit and stuff like that. So it changed my perception of the country and also gave me an idea of the social gap that exists in the country. It's I started paying attention to what society is around me, where I'm living, how it is happening. And it started, I think, with that book. I'll talk about a last book that was very important in my uh, career. is uh, Marie Chauvet. It's a Haitian woman who wrote Amour, Colère, Folie. It's her, how would I say, her most known book. And it's a really pivotal book in Haitian and feminine literature. To me, she's like an extraterrestrial in her time. Coming and writing a book like that in the early 60s on the dictatorship of Duvalier when her husband was a partisan of that dictatorship, not only for the audacity of her subject and the problem, the deep problem of society that she, she projected and wrote about, the color problem, the political problems, the sex problem in Haiti. Really, Amour Colère Folie, after reading it, I felt that Marie Chauvet set me free as a woman, as a creator, as an author. She said, well, this is for you. You go ahead and do what you have to do. You can do anything you want to do. If I could do that when I did it, 
After I tried to learn more about her, about her life, I'm not going to elaborate on it, but she's a woman who had a harsh life. Her books have been destroyed by her husband. She had so, so, so many dreams of, you know, being a famous writer, but those dreams never, never came true. And I have read part of her correspondence with Simone de Beauvoir, who read the first manuscript of Amour Colère Folie at the time with the editor Gallimard. They exchanged some letters and I read some of them. And I could feel her thirst to realize herself, to be free to write, to live from her writing, to be known. And I could feel all that because when you write, it's a very solitary endeavor. But once you're done, you want the world to share it. And this could not happen during her lifetime, and it is sad, but the power is still there. And each time you read her, you feel that from her writing. So I think that that woman is very important for all of us women writing today. All of us. that we probably write the way we think, the way ideas come, the way we speak, the way emotions rise in us. Our writing resembles just, I would say, like a painter's painting resembles that person after a while. The colors, the shapes, your imaginary, well, it belongs to you and it's part of you. After a while, well, you are assimilated with what you are creating. I myself, I can compare my writing from my first novel and from the last one. I am pleased with what I wrote in my first novel, Casale. Although uh, I know of a few authors who reject, who don't accept their first productions because it's not very uh, up to the, the level that they have reached. But Casale for me not only was my first experience, but it was written in a moment of my life very, you know, important for me. Well, while I was discovering a lot of aspects in my life, my spirituality, my traditions, uh, it was really a very intense moment. And the writing at the time reflected what I was living I stay true to that book and what I did with it, although I will never probably write another one like that. You cannot write a book twice. Now, it depends on um, the moment also that you are crossing, what you're going through. As a rule, I would say that I write in short sentences because I like to read short and short sentences myself. My emotion that burst out in cascade is not a long river coming, no, it's something that bursting out and coming out of me by little uh, drops, very intense sometimes. But I enjoy reading writers who are masters at composing long phrases and intricate phrases that are powerful really fascinated by them. I enjoy them, but this is not me. This is not the way I compose. This is not the way it is coming. For instance, I love Yannick Jean. Yannick Jean, she, she was a Haitian poet and playwright and novelist who unfortunately passed away in 2000. She was in her 50s. And she has that kind of uh, writing that, you know, it's like you're going down a pit and you, you get lost in her writing. It's so complicated, so deep, so profound, so emotional at the same time. And she has that way of doing of all the circumvolutions. She's a master at it. There is that poem book of her that is always at my bedside. It's called La Fidelité Non Plus. How would I translate it in English? It's a beautiful poetry and a very, very intricate poetry. And there is also that French of African origin author. Her name is Marie Ndiaye. She writes those long, long phrases that, wow, 
it's like a wall. At the same time, she can be very sharp and very strong in what she's saying, but this is a rhythm. I guess it comes with how you feel, how your emotions come, because I cannot change to become a long phrases writer. I don't think so. But things will change just the same, depending on what subject you're working on, depending also on what's going on in your life. What I saw is that the situation in my country for the past 20 years went from bad to worse. And this has an influence on me, on a certain way I see things, on a certain bitterness that is underlying my writing. Whether I'm talking about joyful things or very bad things, but this situation has an effect on me that is not all the time positive. That also your personal, intimate, family situation has an impact on the way you are writing. All this makes a difference, all this count. And I remember also I tried to write in the simplest manner I could. And I did this in a little collection of short stories. Writing simple can be the most difficult thing to do. You're reading it and it's so light, so sometimes, you know, even childish. But it is the most difficult thing to do. Reading yourself of all the, the, your mastery of everything and writing simply like it's water flowing. This experience was different from what I had done before. And I remember the first critic I read on that collection of poetry is that, well, they did not recognize me. It was not me, it was too simple. I was kind of, wow, what's happening? Why, why are they saying that? Because to me, this is an exercise of uh, lots of effort I put in it. Of course, unfortunately, other reviews praised the quality of the writing, but that person was honest, and I retained the comment, he is entitled to his opinion, said that that was not Kitley Mars. He did not recognize me. It's something that you have to be aware of. What people see you, how they perceive you, and do not let that influence you, although you have to listen to what they're saying. You have to stay true to who you are also, because they like you so much in such and such novel that they want all your books to look the same, to give them the same feeling, the same emotions that they felt. They all recognize themselves in all your books the way they did in such and such one that is their favorite. It's a kind of caricature. Not long ago, someone told me I have a novel under construction and that person read it. And he told me, oh, there is not enough sex, for instance. That person would say that there is not enough sex or I don't feel your punch and stuff like that. Although it's still a project that can, you know, go upside down in all directions. But still, I said, I'll understand what you mean. Don't forget it's a project, but also don't forget that you cannot put me in a frame and want me to be that author forever. I'm not the same person every morning that I rise. I'm different. My dreams are different. My guts are different. I'm either constipated, I might have diarrhea. I'm a human being, I'm not a robot. You cannot expect everything from me. Although some authors, that's exactly what they do because they are just writing to please a readership and profit of it. I don't blame them, but not all this way, you know? It's something that you have very careful. For instance, some editing firms, some publishers would say, ah, you are a woman, you are black, you come from Haiti, you speak French, this is what I want you to write. This is what will appeal to the readers and make your book sell. I understand they are doing a business, but at the same time, I'm creating. It cannot be on order, on, unless you, Sonia, you said, Ketli, I want a, a beautiful book on such and such, and I want you to put this, 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 and this in it. Uh, it's an order. 
it's a job. But if I'm creating, I want to be totally free about what I'm doing. As a, a black woman from Haiti, they want you to be exotic. They want you to talk about voodoo, for instance. They would want you to correspond to the, the idea that they have of the, the Caribbean, of the island, and Haiti in particular being, well, the first black republic in the world and blah, blah, blah. So they expect you to be in that like for a long time, Haitian painting was naive. That's all people knew about Haitian painting. We have to be naive paintings, you know, which was a trend back in the 50s. That made sense at the time, but that grew to something else. That's what people in their minds expect from Haitian painting. And also that would be the same for me as a writer writing. So sometimes you have to force yourself on them and... Of course, it is the quality of what you're writing that will make the difference. The expectation can come from not only people outside of your country, but people from also your country. For the past, uh, I would say, 30 years, there has been an outburst of uh, Creole literature in Haiti of young generation of writers who write a lot about the hardships in the country, who write a lot about their dreams, about their deceptions. As I was telling you, the situation in the country is not good at all. And to be a la mode, you would have to write like they do. You have to have the same themes as they do, but it's not okay because I like to be honest as a writer and write about what I know. Although I feel totally free to venture in any world, in any level, but still I want to be true to myself and I write a lot about the social class from which I come. And I think it is legitimate to do it because it's a social class, although it is appreciated or not in Haiti but it exists. I would say for a long time, it is from my social class that all intellectuals in Zaidi come from. They have a tendency to tag you as a bourgeois. You are a bourgeois writer because I don't write all the time about the ghettos, about the slums, and, but I don't know them. I can make the intellectual leap and understand them, but still I was not raised in the middle of it. So it wouldn't sound honest and genuine if I just wrote about that when I have other concerns for my writing. I would say there are two facts, two things that have an influence on the rhythm of your production. The first one is what kind of writer you are. Are you a, a bulimic writer or are you a writer that takes time between every book you write? I have a few friends that can write a novel each year and some are, are running a race to be famous, a race for money and they are entitled to it if they can do it. Um, I admire that capacity to do it, although I, I don't think that it is the best way to do it because writing a book a year, you are doing something to writing I, and to literature. I think that is not too good, but that's my opinion. But if that is how you are, you are like people eat a lot and some are very small eaters and uh, I'm big, you are small. It's just like that. It's like your hormones. You can write a lot or you cannot. I'm not in the category of writers who can write lots of books. Now, the last book I wrote uh, was published in 2018, which is about four years ago. 
And if it was published in 2018, it means that I wrote it at least uh, in the year before, let's say 2017, 16, 17. So I haven't written a book for five years. Why? The reasons are so various and sometimes insignificant and at the same time very important. I did not feel ready for that. I needed a time to pause from writing or things were going on in my life that had more priority or that were keeping me from writing also because to be able to write, I need peace around me. I need to be in a peaceful environment. And this came with age because when I was younger, I could write in any environment. I could write while I was at my office working and I always have my page on the job I was doing at the office. And anytime there would be a five minute breaks, I would go and write something. I needed that pressure to write, but now this is just not possible anymore. I'm older and I need peace of mind. I don't have to be broke. If I'm broke, I cannot write. If I have a heartbreak, I cannot write. If my daughter is going through a heartbreak or she's not working or she's in depression, I cannot write. Lots of things that ha have happened in my life, a death of someone you like, and that keep me from writing. In the meantime, you can write a poem, for instance. It's not a compensation or it is not, I don't know. Because poetry comes like, it's a given. It's a sudden emotion and you have to catch it. If you don't, you lose it, you forget it. They compensate for all that writing you're not doing. I started a novel at the beginning of this year, 2022. To me, it was like a lifeline. I was in a very uh, new situation in my life. I moved from Haiti to the United States, to Florida. At first, I really was unstable. I hang to that writing to hold on, to move on, to find some stability. And it was at, at the same time, very painful writing and very liberating writing also. That's it. That's how I could see that the rhythm of writing for each writer is different depending on who you are, what kind of writer you are, and also uh, what's going on in your life and what environment you need physically and in your head to be able to start a long-term project. The inspiration from work, from my work experience, would be human. Relationship with colleagues, with bosses. I worked a long time with Japanese people at the Japanese embassy in Haiti. It was kind of an experience, you know. It's the first time I was closely meeting Asian people, Japanese people in particular. I learned a lot from them. I suffered a lot from them because of the cultural shock that was almost daily. Although I stayed like 20 years with them, but you never get to really uh, know them. But of course, from a human point of view, it was great. Those people, they were changing. Every two, three years, new ones would come. And you would see the difference between the former ones and the newcomers, the young and the older, depending on what was their experience before, if they just came from Japan and to Haiti for the first time, or if they had already traveled. And this made a big difference in the way they related to you, in their complexes, in their feeling of superiority and stuff like that. The more they travel, the more their mind is open, the more you can, you know, have a human normal relationship with them so i would say that is what work brought me as far as my writing experience but as for the writing itself administrative language is kind of boring and repetitive uh, you say the same thing there is a formula especially in diplomatic administration there is a formula to begin every whatever a letter you are writing it's always the same formula so you have to be uh, repetitive and clear 
and make yourself understood in as a few words as possible. So maybe it's, it trained also my brain to be to the matter of fact and say what I have to say in the least words possible. I don't think it brought me much in terms of inspiration for writing itself or it had an influence in the quality of my writing but working for me was more a human experience definitely so it's not exactly true that i learned french in school Yes, formally, formally I learned French in school, but when you say French in Haiti, you are touching a very sensitive subject because we are a bilingual country with Creole and French. The discrepancies, the gaps between French and Creole describes the discrepancies and the gaps in Haitian society because French is the language of the colon the colonialism period, that's what we inherited from them. The mass of the slaves that came from Africa, from different ethnicities, to understand one another, they forged that language in duress, in pain that is called Creole, so that they could exchange, relate, and understand each other. So this is the true, really the true language of Haiti. It is Creole. But it is the language of the majority, it is the language of the mass that is poor, that is not well educated. There is a minority of people in Haiti, I would say, roughly, you know, 10% of people in Haiti who can master really French. So depending on how you speak French, on how you pronounce the words, people will tell what is your social extraction. I see you speaking good French as a bourgeois, but it's an aspiration at the same time. They would like to master the language and to socially climb to your position. Although now there is that tendency, like I would say after the fall of the dictatorship, a tendency for Creole to be in front now. Poetry, playwrights, plays, novels are written in Creole today. The tendency would be like to look down to French-only writers. So it's kind of uh, sensitive and complicated, but I refuse the manichaeism. It's either I'm French writing author or I'm Creole writing. Both are faces of us. Both are the way we express ourselves, who we are, and uh, both are important to us because Creole is the language of our guts. It's how we understand one another, but French also opens us up on the rest of the world. It brings us knowledge, it brings us all other writers in the world, whereas Creole has a, still a long way to go to answer to all our needs as far as education is concerned, literature is concerned. So it's an ongoing project that is difficult, but is there. I don't participate in those debates, French over Creole and Creole over French. I write both of them. Of course, when I was a little girl, it was correct. It was bien séant for a little girl of my condition to speak French alone. My dad was very severe about it. I have four brothers. I'm the only sister among them. And if I was playing in the yard with my brothers and my dad heard me spoke Creole, he would call me and punish me. You know, have me sit at the end of his bed for an hour because I spoke Creole. So it's to tell you that a certain social class in Haiti has a very conscious of itself and French was one of the pivot of this consciousness. You spoke French, so you are a special person. You, you belong to the elite. I wonder why I do love to speak French and write in French so much because I was punished for that language, you know. But still... I took the best of it. I took the best of it. And 
most of my novels are written in French. But, but about 10, 15 years ago, I started learning how to master Creole reading and writing because there is today a Creole Academy in Haiti who has set the a standard writing for Creole. So we can share the same rules and the same knowledge about the language. And there has been a proliferation of writing in Creole and beautiful writing in Creole. This is a language that is so perfect to express Haitian feelings. I myself have started writing poetry in Creole. I can appreciate the difference that the Creole language and also to write in Creole because I felt the need to inspire it by all that, that was being written in Creole. The young generation writing very powerful poetry, very powerful uh, prose in Creole. And so they inspired me, they influenced me. And I started writing also poetry in Creole. And I can make the difference between writing poetry in French and in Creole. This is not the same feeling. This is not the same power. This is not the same atmosphere. It's hard to explain the difference, but I can feel it. I don't know if I'll ever write a novel in Creole. If I have what it takes for a long-term project, write it all the way in Creole. But I have written for a few years. I had that series that I produced every week on the newspaper in Haiti. And it was for young people. Each week I produced something and it was half French, half Creole. And I enjoyed myself so much writing that. And it was so well received by the young readers that until now they're talking about it. I uh, produced it and at the end of the season they would make a book out of it. So I have four volumes of those writing that essentially 50-50 Creole and French. The idea was to be a reflection of the life of those young people in Haitian society today, their new language, the way they talk, the way they dress, the problems they were facing, the way they love, their drugs problems, school problems, whatever. And in a very funny and spiritually way, really, I enjoyed myself doing that project where Creole was so much involved. So uh, I see absolutely no problem with that. And believe me, this is a big, big issue in Haiti now between scholars and intellectuals that debate on what to do with Creole and French. But I think mostly it is political. It is political. And until we have uh, a stable uh, government, a stable society, those issues cannot be resolved. We need peace of mind to go on and uh, construct solid public policies towards language that we are teaching our kids in Haiti, period. When I was young, there was no Creole taught at school, but I have to say that my children, they learned Creole at school and I was very pleased with that. Yes, everywhere you go, someone can speak English. In general, I would say that Haitians have a knack for languages. It's in the people, you know, we catch foreign language fast. And I remember when I was very, very small, my mom had a Cuban professor coming at the house, teaching her Spanish. He was an old guy named Francisco. I'll never forget. My mom repeating after Francisco Spanish words and they would stay in my head, in my ears. When I was a kid, my mom had uh, by the downtown, close to the sea, a little shop, souvenir shop for tourists because there used to be cruise ships coming two, three times a week. And, you know, a row of tourists, right? People all pink, all looking the same flowing down downtown and they would visit my mom's uh, little shop and I was curious to understand what they were saying you know and I was 
pulling on my mom's skirt. What are they saying? What are, she said, let me, let me sell, let me do my job. I wanted to know what they were saying. And I think that there comes my interest for those two languages, Spanish and English, but I had more opportunities to speak English with time, with my mom's little shop, and also when I started schooling. I love to read English. I'd much rather read an English-speaking writer in its original language than any translation in French, of course. And I have an anecdote about that is that I remember the first time I heard about Edwige Dantica. It was her famous first book, Eyes, Breath and Memory. There was a lot of fuss about that book, a young Haitian writer from the diaspora. She went on Oprah's show and she was soaring and everyone was talking about her. So I found a translation in French of that book and I started reading it. And after like 20 pages, I found it boring. The translation was so heavy. It lacked spirit. It lacked everything. So I put the book down. Afterwards... I read all the books that Edwidge has written and I fell in love with them because I read them in English. And it's only about three, four weeks ago in that new house in Florida, I was looking for something in the closet and I found the book in English. And I read it with so, so much pleasure. I had to write to Edwidge to tell her the story. I started their book in French 20 years ago and I left it and now I just cannot put it down because I'm reading it in English. So this is my relationship with English. I like to read poetry, I like to read novels in English. Although English English is a little difficult for me to listen because of the strong accent. You know, I'm more familiar with American English. But yeah, I understand it well. I watch a lot of TV in English ever since I was a teenage. With the closeness of Haiti with Florida and the United States, we all have family in somewhere in New York, Brooklyn, or in downtown Miami. So our vacations were always either in New York or uh, Miami. On TV, it's always sometimes American films that we watch in English sometimes. Yeah, I'm very familiar with this language and, and I like it. I enjoy listening to it and I'm very happy when I can follow a very deep conversation or conference or whatever in that language. And I say, my God, it's, it's miraculous to be able to understand another language. I wish I could do the same with Spanish, but I like practice. I should go and stay in a Spanish-speaking country for six months and catch up with what I learned in school. When I write sometimes, the words come before the idea, which is hard to believe. And sometimes it is the contrary. And I myself, I like it better when words come before the idea because the words help me shape the ideas because sometimes the idea is just blurry. You are thinking of something, but it doesn't have eyes. It doesn't have a nose. It doesn't have lips. And the words come and they help you. They guide you. They just flow. It's always to me like a miracle. I'm each time amazing and so happy this is happening to me because I don't know where the words are coming from, but you're just an instrument, a medium to which the words are flowing. After, when you stop and you read back, of course, there are corrections to be made. It can always be written better, but it's just that something was dictated to you. The things they just kept entwining with one another to make your idea become real. So that is my relationship with word. And to do that, you have to be open. You have to let yourself go. It's like in love making. You have to let yourself go. If you are doubting yourself, if you are resisting because of, I don't know, Whatever is retaining you, you are not getting there. You have to let go, let the idea 
go through to you, not be obnubilated by any taboos, any restrictions, any whatever, and whatever it is. Writing has given me a hunger to understand Haiti more and better, to understand its story, its culture, its traditions, its spirituality, its social codes. Because what you realize as you are writing and your books are being read and people are getting to know you, you become a model for them. You become something that gives them strength, gives them light. I remember after reading my book, after writing Saison Sauvage, Savage Season, which is a story that is taking place in, during the dictatorship of Duvalier in the early 60s. Note that to write this book, I had to make lots of research because I myself was born about the same time as the dictatorship. So we grew up together, but I did not quite understand what was going on. But it's a part of my life. It affected me somehow. And I needed to understand. I needed to stand back, read, talk to people, and understand. And I wrote a book, of course. It's not a historic book. It's not a historical book because when you read an essay or a historical book, you learn date, dates, facts, numbers, but you don't have feelings. You don't have emotions. You don't have ex personal experience. And that's what a novel, a story brings you that makes you understand what was going on at this time because the story is inside a family that some very powerful guy in the government is taking over. The husband is in prison and the wife is there, a beautiful woman with two kids, and the guy knows that he is her last hope to have news and know what went wrong with her husband, and they become lovers and off the story goes. I remember someone writing that I finally understood what dictatorship was when I read this novel. And this is maybe the most gratifying comment that I've read. I saw that did something useful, but not from a fiction point of view. Although there are facts that were inspired by true events, you know, but still... It's how you put the people into the situation and you make them feel and you make them decide if you are in that situation, what would you do? Can you judge? Can you condemn if you are not living that situation yourself? That's what writing does that I think that makes the whole difference. And fiction is liberty. Fiction is power. You can change the world. You can create new worlds as long as you let yourself go. The relationship between fiction and in reality is very thin because they are entwined. I can do full fiction and make up a story, but my experience, my human experience and the experience I gather from other people will be there to guide the fiction. And if I'm talking about a story that I know, I will put fiction in it to whatever make the characters live. So there is no, you know, gap and stuff like that. It's exactly what happened to me in my novel, Je suis vivant, I am alive. It's a story that is very close to me, you know, about that guy who came back to live in his family 40 years after he was put in a mental institution, right after the earthquake in Haiti. It happened close to my family and I was so much... How would I say that? This situation was very strong to me. So I said, well, I have to talk about that. I cannot let that go unnoticed because this is not our story, but it's the story of so many people in Haiti and in the world. Because mental illness is a very difficult subject to take up in literature or whatever situation. But to do that, I had to invent characters. I had to make up stories within the real stories. And uh, fiction and reality went, uh, you know, hand in hand. 
well, that's the way to do it. So uh, I wonder if one author can say that I have written a 100% fiction book, whether it's science fiction or utopia or dystopia or call it whatever you want. You cannot write a 100% full fiction because it's going to your filter, your own filter, your human experience. usually like all my characters, but I like some more than others. I like Sophonie in Casale because she kind of personalized me in my experience with discovering uh, that place where my grandmother was born and where my family uh, was very close to their spirits of the family. I like Niova in Saison Sauvage, that woman who has to use all that nature has given her to save her family. I like Emanuela in L'Ange du Patriarche. She's a woman who is living a very functional life and all of a sudden she's in the middle of a spiritual warfare and she has to react. Some I feel are better created. Some are more attaching, whether in the good or in the bad sense. But creating good character is easier, I would say, from my experience. Creating villains or persons that are cynical or calculator or obnoxious is not easy because we like nice people, but they are very important. And one thing I've discovered, killing a character is difficult. I remember I was writing um, L'Ange du Patriarche and there is that young guy, Alain. He's the son of the main female character. And it was obvious the way that the writing of the novel was going that Alain would have to die. But I was in such a debate with myself. It's not possible. It's like killing my own son. What's going on? What should I do? What twist should I give to the story to avoid him being killed? And it was a big problem I couldn't make up myself. And I decided, I called my daughter Tessa, who was traveling somewhere. And I said, Tessa, because she, she is my first reader. And I said, I don't know what to do with Alain. The way the story is going, Alain has to die for the story to stand. But I like him. I cannot do this to him. And she said, mom, kill the guy. <laughs> you know, if he has to go, he has to go. That's the fun of it. She's objective. She's not in the, the mainstream of the feelings that I'm dealing with. And she can tell me that blunt, do whatever you have to do. So I needed to hear that. And I said, okay, no problem. <laughs> Especially for myself, I don't like story with happy ending all the time. Life is not happy ending all the time. I'm sorry. You make with what you have, but most of the time there are no happy endings. It's mitigated. It's some good, some bad, or sometimes very bad, but we overcome. I don't like stories that are all the time Everybody is nice and good and they got married and they have so many kids. I don't believe in that. I don't believe that. I'd rather leave the story open and let the reader decide of the fate of the characters. At least I would do that instead of making everybody happy because it was too hard for them all the way to get there and then it finishes in a bad way, you know. I'd rather leave it open. And you know what? People are very concerned about those happy endings because... In that Saison Sauvage book, I remember at, at the end, the family is fleeing the country and they are crossing the frontier from Haiti to the Dominican Republic. I leave the story there. I didn't say what happened to them. So the reader will decide, could they be saved or did they kill them because they are being chased? I would meet people in the streets, at the supermarket, uh, wherever, in the office, and do tell me, but what happened to them? We need to know what happened to them. You cannot do that. <laughs> 
I tell them, well, you do whatever you do with them. Whether you like them or you hated them, you will decide of what happened to them. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Gender Center for Excellence, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. The chapter Feminism in the Caribbean is a special collaboration with the Caribbean Art Initiative as part of the public program of the past exhibition one month after being known in that island, curated by Gina Jiménez-Suriel and Pablo Guardiola, and supported by the Kulturstiftung Basel Geiger. The Caribbean Art Initiative is committed to contemporary art that is related to the Caribbean and supporting the creative and cultural exchange between the Caribbean region and the rest of the world. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Recording and editing Sonia Fernandez Pan. Final editing and voiceover Elena Caesar. Music S. McAvoy. Research team Tabia Rothfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and communication Anna Franke. Technical support by Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright by Institut Art, Gender and Nature, HDK, FHNW and Kulturstiftung Basel H. Geiger 2023.